We do things differently in America. Not simply to be different, but because American soccer lives, breathes, and grows within a country and culture unlike anywhere else. I'm proud of the unique American soccer culture we've created. It's passionate, diverse, and I'd argue more educated than any soccer culture in the world, simply out of necessity. Hello, sunshine, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. Uh, we come to you yet again from Russia here at the World Cup, and we are recording this on July 4th, uh, Independence Day. Happy birthday to what I feel uh, is the greatest country in the world. We will have a small celebration here in uh, in Moscow with all of our uh, staff and crew and friends and whatever family is here to celebrate that. Uh, but before uh, we talk about that, let me bring in my friend, my colleague, a Fox writer and researcher extraordinaire, my guiding light, David Mossy. David Mossy, happy 4th of July. How are you, my friend? I am good. Uh, very much enjoying our second day off of the tournament. I'm back at the hotel now, but uh, had an eventful morning. Uh, went down to Red Square. I went and saw Lenin's tomb. Uh, I also went inside St. Basil's Cathedral, uh, had lunch down there, walked around quite a bit. Uh, and uh, now, as you mentioned, I'm gearing up for this big party we have tonight. So you said you, you saw Lenin's tomb. Lenin would be for our, uh, for our younger audience that may not know. Well, he uh, essentially the orchestrated the Russian Revolution, 1917, when the Bolsheviks uh, took control and uh, set uh, Russia... Uh, Soviet Union became on this path to communism. Uh, so yeah, he's a revered figure. I mean, you see monuments to him all over the city. And uh, one of the big tourist attractions is to see actually uh, his, his tomb. And it's uh, it, the thing that struck me is how, how tiny he is. He was a, a small man, but uh, uh, no, it was, it was very cool. And, and, and the cathedral too was amazing. Uh, the architecture inside there is breathtaking. So I, I am just digging up the, the culture and the history of the city. I'm, I, I was a history major in college. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of a buff for this kind of stuff. I love going to museums and cathedrals and seeing famous monuments. And so this city has really hit the spot as far as that goes. Well, I, uh, on my day off, have done nothing. Um, uh, I am burning it at both ends. Uh, I'm not complaining. Once again, it's the best Groundhog Day that you could ever have. Uh, I did nothing today, uh, which, which is fine with me. Um, uh, but I would like to—I actually like to see uh, Lenin's tomb and, and Saint Basil's and all that, all that kind of stuff. It's we're, we are in the shadows of that every single day working, and I have yet to go over there. So I will—I will check that out. Uh, before we move on, uh, David, anything else uh, that you'd like to tell the people in terms of your your time here? Not much has changed. As I as I said, we just keep kind of doing the same thing every day. Uh, any any love connection, David? I mean, you know, listen, I, I I told people before the tournament started that all sorts of stuff happens when you go to a World Cup. You're you're confined uh, with a lot of different people, people that you know, people that you meet, all that kind of stuff. Anything on the horizon? International love. <laughs> Well, uh, I did get the phone number of a young lady that works at the hotel I'm staying at. Um, I've been chatting her up for several days. She speaks, she's Russian, she speaks Spanish though. Uh, she's from Kazan, but uh, she lives in Moscow now, works at our hotel. And so after several days of chatting her up, uh, I finally got the courage this morning to ask if she wanted to perhaps want to, during one of my off days, hang out. She said, sure, we, I got her number. So stay tuned for more on that. Uh, and yeah, there are definitely a couple of other targets out there perhaps one or two they're gonna be at this party tonight so uh, <laughs> uh so we'll uh oh my gosh 
that makes me so happy to hear. Uh, congratulations on, on getting a number. I, I, I look forward to hearing more, more about it going forward. But listen, we're not here to talk about your love life. Uh, we are here to talk about this incredible tournament that keeps rolling along. Every day we seem to get something new. Uh, and certainly this, uh, this past week was, 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 was no different. We, we had stories on and off the field. But as always, we start off the pod with my State of the Union. Alexi Lawless's State of the Union. Yes, indeed, it's time for my State of the Union. All right, it goes something like this on this July 4th. This summer, the world's eyes are glued to events here in Russia. But back home, the show must go on. Major League Soccer and other leagues continue to play games during the World Cup. Now, to some, this is inconceivable, preposterous, even disrespectful. To others, it's just plain dumb. The audacity and arrogance to play at the same time when the sport's attention and focus is elsewhere makes no sense. Except that it does. To us. We do things differently in America. Not simply to be different, but because American soccer lives, breathes, and grows within a country and culture unlike anywhere else. I'm proud of the unique American soccer culture we've created. It's passionate, diverse, and I'd argue more educated than any soccer culture in the world simply out of necessity. We have our own version of the beautiful game. It borrows from others, but it also reflects the fact that just because something is done somewhere else doesn't mean it's the right way. This past weekend, millions of Americans got up and watched the World Cup, a World Cup, by the way, that doesn't even have the U.S. team play. Later, 72,000 Americans went to watch Atlanta United. 50,000 went to see San Jose. 47,000 went to see Seattle. That's the American soccer culture, and that's the American game. It's different, and it's beautiful. So, happy birthday, America. Here's to a proud soccer nation, and here's to being different. All right, and that's my State of the Union for this July 4th, 2018. David Mossy, I know that uh, you have been thinking about things on and off the field, and I know uh, at times uh, you have looked at what is going on back in the United States. And is it something that you understand and accept, or is it something that you can't wrap your, uh, your, 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 your mind around? Because I know there's a lot of people out there just can't fathom that our club situation continues to go on while the World Cup is going on. Because everybody knows we have a different uh, calendar. We go from the spring until the winter, as opposed to most of the uh, seasons around the world that go from the fall and they go around the corner and then come back to the summer. What say you, Masi? Well, but, you know, Brazil has the same calendar as the U.S., and they paused for the World Cup. Uh, I think the key thing you said there is the U.S. not in this World Cup. But you have a bigger issue if the U.S. was involved and still alive right now. And would you then say that maybe there shouldn't be anything that would divert attention from that? I wouldn't have an issue because I think that ultimately when it comes to the business of soccer, that MLS has to do what they feel is appropriate for their business to not just survive, but to thrive. And if they feel that it doesn't hurt business and it helps business in any way, uh, I think that that's something that they should do. This, this notion that they should, um, that they are disrespecting the game because it's, because it's happening and because all eyes and focus are on Russia right now and this, this party that is the World Cup, I, I just don't buy that. But the, the bigger thing for me is that you know, we, are, we are told almost almost on a daily basis. Why don't you do it like, like this? And why don't you do it like this? And whether it's, I don't know, uh, the structure of MLS with a single entity, a salary cap, 
promotion relegation, uh, the developmental academies that we have, the way that we develop players, our national, all these different things. It's, it's, well, why don't you do it like they do it here? And I recognize that there is something to be gained by looking at other places and how they do it. I mean, okay, so if, I'll, give you, I'll give you an example. Uh, one of the big stories here at this World Cup was Iceland. This little country of 300,000 people that, that uh, was able to qualify for the Euros and then qualify for the World Cup. How could they possibly do it? Why, if Iceland of 300,000 people can do it, why can't the United States uh, do it? And everybody's looking to what Iceland's doing. Iceland will, will very quickly tell you that their size actually is an advantage. So the fact that they are small enables them to do what they did. So it is an apples and oranges type of situation. It doesn't mean within what they are doing, you can't pick and choose some different things. But just to say, well, the World Cup's happening, and so you can't, you sh you can't and shouldn't play. Well, well, why? If I believe that my business can survive and, can sur and thrive going forward, uh, and I'm not turning off potential customers or the customers that I have, uh, then have at it. And the numbers, and I know it's July 4th weekend, and those are always inflated in terms of the numbers, but people are going to watch soccer, even when the World Cup is happening, and at the same time that the World Cup is happening. So I think it was just, I was, I was trying to say that this is the unique and the different uh, version of the game that we have created. And we take full ownership and are proud of it. And rather than apologizing for it at every turn, because we're not what is happening here, or we're not what traditionally has happened here. Uh, I say we embrace it. I say we own it and recognize that we are creating a version, still a version of the game. It's not a, it's not a bastardized version, and we're not playing a completely different game, but our version that's reflective of who we are as a country and the unique aspects of establishing a game in a country where soccer has never been king, there is incredible amount of competition from the other sports. And, and traditionally and, and historically, it's not a soccer nation in the traditional sense. Now, I, I would argue that we have created uh, a soccer culture and nation that is unique, that is robust, that is passionate, that is discerning. And as I said in my State of the Union, I would submit is more educated than anybody else because we have had to have this inevitable compare and contrast of ourselves and what we're doing on and off the field. Do you think... Uh, or do you disagree with me, Mossy, when I say that the American soccer culture is more educated specifically because of the challenges that are put up to us as opposed to other countries and cultures? Well, it's no less educated, I'll say that. Um, my relatives in Brazil are amazed at how many games they watch in the United States. There's way more games on from different leagues uh, in the U.S. than there are in Brazil. So um, I think actually, yeah, the soccer fan in the U.S. has almost a, a wider range of knowledge. Uh, than perhaps some countries where they focus predominantly on their own league. So, uh, yeah, but, I mean, back to your original point, um, do you have any for MLS teams that are having to play matches now without key players that are at the World Cup, or is that the price you pay if you sign players of international pedigree? That is the price that you pay. You know going in that this is the situation. And, and to be fair, MLS in the past has not taken a break. They have taken a break now, and they have now for a, a number of years. So it's not as if uh, there is no break taken. And there's a recognition that, that the focus and the energy uh, can be beneficial by taking a break. But 
you know, we're talking right now about, about players that are playing. Right now we have one player from MLS that continues to play in this World Cup. Uh, Gustav Svensson of the Seattle Sounders continues on. Congratulations to him. We'll get to that, uh, we'll get to that in a little bit. But I, I just want to go back to something you said because I remember you telling me uh, as we were preparing for this World Cup, and this, is, this actually is relevant right now, that the perception and the knowledge when it came to someone like Bobby Firmino, okay, was very limited because he was playing over in, in Europe. And that, that for an American soccer culture and someone of the American soccer culture just blows your mind because we follow all the leagues and all the players. And once again, out of, out of necessity, because we are part of this world. And as you rightly mentioned, it's amazing how much soccer we are exposed to and how fortunate we are in the U.S. A lot of people that come to visit the United States, the first thing they say, soccer people, they say, oh my God, you're so lucky to have so much soccer. But uh, but, but like, for example, Bobby Firmino, as you, as you said, for Brazil and for Liverpool, uh, th- there wasn't a whole lot of knowledge as to who this player was. There, there is now, but it's because you know, people don't have to follow all the leagues around the world. No, absolutely. Yeah. Um, amazing how many people in Brazil don't follow European football as intensely as I think they should. And then they still want to have opinions about who should be on the national team, and who should be starting. And that blows my mind. I mean, it's a, <laughs> uh, but they, no, they just uh, follow the, the Brazilian league and, and, and that's that. So, yeah, no, I, I, I think your overall point is correct. I think there's a, America has a very unique uh, soccer culture and it should be proud of it. And you can borrow some from other nations, but uh, I don't think they should be ashamed by carving out its own sort of niche in, in the world and uh, doing things their own way. So. All right, Masi, listen, uh, we got soccer to talk about here, too, because this, this tournament rolls on. So uh, we will put to bed the State of the Union for this week. As we always say, if you agree, disagree, you want to yell at me, you want to yell at Masi, please hit us up on all the social media platforms, whether it's a tweet or a Facebook post, or if you just want to send out uh, you know, a snail mail to us. I don't know. We probably have an address somewhere that we could come up with if anybody even does, uh, anybody even does that anymore. But we want to hear from you. We want to hear from you while we are over here in Russia. All right, let's get to the games. Uh, the continued thinning happens in this World Cup. We are down to the last eight. All right, moving on. All right, in this segment, we are going to give you our power rankings. As we mentioned, we are down to the final eight, the quarterfinals of the World Cup. But, Mossy, let's take a look back at how we got here. And when we last spoke, we were in the round of 16, and so much has happened. All of the penalty shootouts uh, that we have had uh, this, this World Cup. Let's go back to uh, our friends from uh, the South Mexico who go out of this World Cup and I think go out in, in a way that was anticlimactic. And the, the way I phrased it, I think, at the time was, this was a tease. They, they really teased us. And I really think it comes down to this Mexico team, after losing to Brazil 2-0 in the 16, yet again, 32 years of futility of making it to that fifth game uh, continues on. It's a tale of two halves. First two games, they were great. They teased us. This was an energetic type of team, an exciting team. And then the next two games, that team didn't show up. And against Brazil, while they had some moments in the first half, ultimately they were outclassed and outrun uh, and certainly outplayed by Brazil. And do you think that this is viewed as a successful tournament for this Mexico team under Juan Carlos Osorio or just they were they were the same thing, and they just disguised themselves for a little bit of the tournament, and it's just the same old, same old when it comes to El Tree. Yeah, I think same old, same old. This is bitterly disappointing for them, the way the first two games went. 
Mexico at World Cups remind me a lot of Arsenal in the Champions League all those years. We couldn't figure out a way to win their group. And so they ended up with tougher around the 16 matchups. They had to face Barcelona and Bayerns and, and kept getting knocked out. And, and it's the same issue for Mexico. It was right there for them to win their group this time. They would have been playing Switzerland in the round of 16, which was an memorable game. Uh, but, you know, obviously they laid an egg against Sweden. They lose 3-0. They end up finishing second in the group. They have to play Brazil. And they didn't even play that badly against Brazil. They, they were the better team for the first 20 minutes or so. Then I agree with you. Brazil uh, was superior uh, for the rest of the way. But, it, but they were superior because they really elevated their game. It wasn't that Mexico played poorly. And so they, they gave a decent go, but against Brazil and fell in the balance right up until the end. But, I mean, still, they should have never been facing Brazil. It should have been Switzerland. They should have figured out a way to get a point against Sweden. And I think that's where, where they're going to look back at with regret at this World Cup. And, yeah, to me, going out in the round of 16 again is bitterly disappointing. I don't know how anybody can call this a successful World Cup. I mean, it's listen, they got out of a tough group, so there's something to be said for that. And there's something to be said for advancing to the knockout stage of seven straight World Cups. But uh, this was all about finally getting over that, that hump, getting to the fifth game, and they didn't do it. So I think, ultimately, they come away from this disappointed. Yeah, I think also Juan Carlos Osorio did not do himself any favors in his reaction after the game. He he blamed the referee, and I'm sorry, Juan Carlos Osorio, uh, no, the referee did not lose this game for you. And, you know, complained about Neymar, and you know, that's a whole other discussion about Neymar uh, and the, uh, you know, the, the criticism that he is getting and the, 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 the pretty loud criticism that he is getting for, for his flopping. Uh, so I don't think that uh, Juan Carlos Osorio is going to come out of this looking uh, looking good because he was hired basically to do one thing and get them to that fifth game. And as you mentioned, they didn't lose this World Cup in that game against Brazil. They lost it against Sweden. And I think they will rue the the lineup, the decisions that they made, and ultimately the way that they played uh, losing to Sweden 3 nothing. Uh, let's move on to uh, the, to France, who had an emphatic performance and by a bunch of people, including Paul Pogba, who has used this World Cup as a coming out party, it's not as if we didn't know who he was, but he had a fantastic game and just really showed his explosiveness, his speed as uh, as uh, as France and um, rolled over Argentina. It wasn't reflected in the scoreline, but really this was finally when the mediocrity of Argentina met the depth and the overall talent of uh, of France, would you say? Yes, I was one for two in this game because he started Giroud and they look great up front. And I, I have been arguing against starting Giroud, so I, I look bad there. But I've also been uh, pushing the Mbappe angle uh, for months now leading into this World Cup. Uh, and, and so I was proven right there because he is something special. He's the most amazing thing I've seen at that age uh, since uh, the Brazilian Ronaldo first burst on the scene. Um, and listen, I sent kind of a tongue in cheek, uh, tweet that day, uh, saying, you know, Carson Wenger called Mbappe the next Pele. And I tweeted that I think that comparison is flattering to Pele and, you know, people have no sense of humor on Twitter. So a bunch of people got all up in arms about it. I'm obviously half joking there. I'm not saying right now that Mbappe is better than Pele, but, uh, but I really think he is something special. Um, you know, and the, to me, the, this whole notion of Neymar being the successor to Messi and Ronaldo never quite worked for me because the spacing age-wise isn't there. He's, he's sort of a contemporary of theirs. Mbappe is the guy that you can see when Messi and Ronaldo exit the stage. He's going to be entering his prime at 21, 22, 23 years of age where a guy really, like, puts it all together and just explodes. And, and so, I, I mean, I think... The, the Mbappe era is coming, and we're seeing the first signs of it. That, that France-Argentina game, you know, with Messi and Mbappe on the field, had something of a changing of the guard feel to it. Um, and, and, yeah, he was just phenomenal. And, and, I, and I, I thought he might go Pele 1958 on us in this tournament, 
and, and I think we're seeing it. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me another big performance from him in the next game. All right, I didn't, I didn't mean to bury the lead, but our hosts here, Russia, go through against Spain. Uh, an incredible result, something that not, I don't think anybody that I know was able to pick. Uh, the way in which they did it, there's nothing, uh, there's nothing complex about it. There was nothing beautiful about it. They defended the entire game, and it worked out perfectly because they were defending against a team in Spain that, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, Mossy, this was a team that was much more proud and concerned with passing and keeping the ball than actually putting the ball in the net, which we know is the object of this game. And at times, it was completely maddening, not just for people on the outside, but certainly listening to the Spanish press after this game. Uh, it, was, it was almost this – the. The, what was this beautiful game that Spain slash Barcelona had helped to create that made us think uh, and watch the game in a completely different way and, and, and to a certain extent revolutionized the game. It was just this bastardized form. It had grown gluttonous and it had grown into a, into a mutation of it that ultimately devoured itself. Uh, what were your thoughts when you were watching the 1,000 passes or whatever it was and Russia just basically bunkering in and not being too bothered throughout the game and then winning on penalties? I completely agree with you. Uh, in the postmortem here, there's been a lot of articles written about is Tiki Taka dead? Have teams figured out Tiki Taka? And I- I'm not going to go that far because Tiki Taka, when it's done right, it involves, yes, a lot of possession, but, but probing passes, moving the ball around crisply, breaking lines, a lot of movement. And we saw none of that. I mean, it was just a lot of sideways passes. And, and that this was sort of where Tiki Taka can go wrong and, and frankly, get a little laborious uh, to watch. And, yeah, the Spanish media has been, been, been on this. They've been talking about how this, this is not what Tiki Taka is all about. And, 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 this, and you know, completing over 100 passes, 1,000 passes is great. But, I mean, it, there was just no end product to anything they did. And so, uh, yeah, and, you know, you look at the coaching change uh, – at the at the eve on the eve of the tournament and would Lopetegui have sensed that things weren't going well and had a plan B and Yeto just wasn't the guy to make you know he had just taken over the team you know and, and wasn't the guy to make that change I don't know but but it they they were a big disappointment for me they were my pick to win um, this uh, World Cup they were number one team on my original power rankings and and Spain really let me down here and and yeah it, it, you felt like Isco was all alone there because uh, Iniesta showed his age. David Silva really struggled at this World Cup. And so, you know, I thought those three combining together was sort of going to be the key to that team. And it was really only one guy, Isco, that showed up and played well. And then obviously we know the issues at the back with De Gea. So, yeah, there, there was just something missing with the Spanish team, something off and, and, and yeah, very disappointing. And, and the flip side of it is Russia, which I tell you, this, this run of theirs is starting to remind me a lot of South Korea in 2002 and the way that the country's behind them now. And we've seen host nations do this before. It would not surprise me at all if they uh, beat Croatia in the next game because there is a little bit of magic in the air here for sure with this team. I just want to mention something about Russia because uh, I was reading an article uh, the other day in USA Today uh, taking the, the media and the broadcasters to task for not um, referencing and including the long history uh, and the proven history of doping when it comes to Russia through their sports. And uh, I, I take a little bit of uh, of umbrage to, to that because, number one, this Russian team has not been proven guilty of anything. And look, I, I recognize as much as anybody that there is a systemic type of problem that has been exposed 
uh, and that certainly can be part of the conversation. But when we're talking about this Russia team and what they are doing, none of these players uh, have been uh, found guilty of anything, number one. Number two, when it comes to enhancement and doping, uh, you need to get a benefit. And so I, I challenge people to look at the way that this Russia team has played and show me where the benefits of something like that uh, can be found. I think that's, that, that will be a discussion, but I, just, I thought it was interesting how people thought that we were uh, on purpose ignoring something that is serious and that is valid and is fair to talk about when it came to a group of Russian athletes, given the history of Russia with their, with their athletes. But who knows, that might be a developing story as we go along. But, uh, but, but it doesn't mean that I can't be happy for these Russian players and for Russia going, uh, going through. And, and we are, because this is an incredible accomplishment, as you mentioned. All right, Mossy, uh, all so many different wonderful games. This Belgium team, I, I they, we know they beat Japan three to two in an incredible comeback. I actually think that this is red flag territory for Belgium, and I, which is why in my rankings you will see that uh, in my power rankings they fall even winning a game. And Martin O'Neill, who was on set with us, was incredulous. He couldn't believe how somebody could win and still <laughs> fall. Well, if you win in that manner, uh, it like I said, it throws up a bunch of red flags for a team that is undeniably talented. Is this Belgian team really someone that can win the World Cup after you see that game against Japan? And do, do you think it was, it was just an aberration, an anomaly, and they showed their true colors when they finally turned it on by putting, by the way, Fellaini in? <laughs> well, first off, uh, Martin O'Neill clearly didn't follow the 1997 college football season because Michigan was number one going into the bowl game and they beat Washington State in the Rose Bowl and somehow dropped in one of the polls and ended up having to split the national championship with Nebraska, which I'm still bitter about to this day. Uh, but I digress. No, I, I'm not as down on Belgium as you are. Yeah, and listen, they, they, uh, I thought Japan played great in that game, but the, the fact that Belgium were able to come back showed me a lot. So uh, I'm, I'm still very high on them, uh, very nervous about this game coming up with Brazil. I think it's a 50-50 game. So uh, I look at it more as a positive, the resiliency they show, the, the mental toughness. But I will say, uh, if not for that freakish Vertonghen goal happening when it did, I'm not sure they would have come back because they were, they were starting to get to the point there. In the 70th minute, down two goals, where, you know, a little, if a little bit longer that game went without them scoring, I think that their will might have been broken a little bit, but they got that freakish goal over Tongan. I've, I've never seen a header from that, that angle go in. Um, and, and earlier in the sequence, the, the Japanese keeper should have corralled the ball. It was, it was bouncing around the box. Instead, he punched it out. I hate when goalkeepers do that. But uh, and as you mentioned, yeah, Martinez made some good subs. He brought in Chadley and Fellaini for Mertens and, and Carrasco, and it paid off because, sure enough, Fellaini gets the 2-2 and Chadley gets the 3-2 in the last kick of the game. So... Yeah, I mean, it just shows you their, their squad depth, the fact that they have weapons like that that they can bring on to, to change the game. And so, uh, yeah, I'm, I, I don't take as much negative out of it. I think it's more a testament to how well Japan played uh, than anything wrong with Belgium. I'm still very, very high on Belgium. All right, I'm not going to worry about the Sweden game. Congratulations to Sweden on going through. It wasn't a, a, a great game, uh, I, although I do think Sweden is going to give uh, England a real tough uh, challenge going forward. But uh, the Uruguay... Uh, going through against uh, Portugal, Cristiano goes, goes out. We all knew that this was not a great Portugal team, although it had one of the best, if not the best player in, in this tournament. But that's not enough to get you through what I think is a really balanced and solid Uruguay team uh, from top to bottom, whether it's just a solid goalkeeper or, or the uh, the tandem in the back with uh, Godin and Jimenez, and then obviously the incredible tandem up top with Cavani. Uh, if there's something you want to say about that, you can you can throw that in. But I want to turn it to this incredible result from England. 
And I want to, I want to first off say, you know, look, I, I make fun of the English all the time and we have back and forth. And by the way, they make fun of me all the time. And the connections between the United States soccer culture and the English soccer culture are long and deep. And being in that studio and around a lot of English uh, uh, folks that are on our crew, it was incredible and wonderful to see them and to see this unburdening of, of history. And I was so happy for them for, for a number of reasons. One, because of that long history, and it had become such an albatross, and, uh, and not just for the players, but just for the English in general, and this fatalistic type of, oh gosh, here we, go, here we go again, to have those tables turn and to have that lifted off and to visibly just see uh, the, as I said, the unburdening was wonderful. Secondly, they deserved to win. They were the better team on the day. Uh, I thought that while Columbia uh, at times this tournament has been good, I thought they were disgraceful, to be quite honest, in terms of their, uh, their behavior. Uh, and then third, and I'll hand it back to you, Mossy. I ended up being very proud of Mark Geiger. Uh, what, what people will do when something like this happens is they'll say he lost control of the game, but they'll never tell me how they would have gotten control of a game that I feel, regardless of who was in the middle, it was going to be heated. It was going to be problematic. And yes, you can say this call was right or this call was right going forward, but I was proud of Mark Geiger. And I know that's probably, uh, you know, a bias when it comes to an American referee who was in an incredible situation and had to control it. And could he have done things better here or there? Of course he could have. But I don't think there's any referee in that type of environment that would have been, wouldn't have been put to the test and have problems dealing with both of those teams and the cauldron that that was. But ultimately, England wins on penalties. Yes, you heard it right. You saw it. It is not a dream. They move on to the quarterfinals. And I think the, the positivity and this New England type of, uh, type of painting is only going to be enhanced. And they're only going to be more positive. Now, they could lose to Sweden. Very, very, it's very uh, possible that they lose to Sweden. They could even lose to Sweden in penalties. But if nothing else, they have unburdened this group of players and unburdened this, this generation of, as I said, that incredible weight of futility and failure when it comes to the World Cup. What were your takes on, uh, on this England victory? Well, I'm going to look at it from the Columbia perspective. I was so disappointed in their performance, I can't even tell you. I know they didn't have James. And it's such a shame, by the way, that a player like James comes into this World Cup with an injury and is unable to really play. I mean, the only real glimpse we saw of the true Columbia team was that Poland game where he got to start alongside Quintero. And it, frankly, it was one of the best performances I've seen from any team in this tournament, that 3-0 win. So there is very much a what-could-have-been aspect of this Columbia World Cup campaign if James had been fit and uh, 100%. Uh, but nevertheless, e even without James, uh, Peckerman completely betrayed the identity of this team. They're a, they're a quality, like slick, you know, attack-minded team. And he started three out-and-out uh, -out defensive midfielders. Uh, I didn't understand the Jefferson Lerma uh, introduction into the lineup. And, and you're right. I mean, they, they were very defensive, borderline thuggish at times. They almost got away with it, but they had no business uh, going winning this game. You know, the one glimpse we, we caught of, of what they could have, a different way they could have approached this game was in the first 15 minutes of the extra time when they battered England, they carved them apart. And you wonder where was that for the previous 90 minutes? And also it went away for the second 15 minutes of the extra time. So we caught this little glimpse there of like, even without Hamas on the field, what this team was capable of if they had played with a different mentality, but it was just for those 15 minutes out of the 120, which is so disappointing. 
And, and yeah, for the rest of the time, England was clearly the better team. So absolutely, they deserve to go. But I have to say, when Henderson missed that penalty, when Ospina saved it, I thought England was done. And, you know, the key in a penalty shootout is when you get a save, you got to make the next one to, to make it stick. And Uribe goes up there and smacks it off the crossbar, which if Uribe had made that one and made it 4-2 Colombia, then uh, there's no doubt in my mind Colombia would be playing Sweden right now, not England. But obviously, that's not the way it went. Uh, anything you want to add about the uh, Uruguay result? No, you know, I'm high on Uruguay, but this Cavani injury is, is a bit of a curveball I wasn't counting on. Uh, presumably, Maxi Gomez will, will commit. He's a very good young player. He scored a lot of goals for Celta Vigo in La Liga this past season. And you still have Suarez up there and a lot of other things I like about this team. Obviously, that rock-solid back line with Godin and Jimenez back there. So I think they're capable of beating France. Uh, I wasn't surprised at all they got past Portugal. Uh, but, but Cavani is a big miss, so and then we'll, we'll talk about the quarterfinal games next. But, uh, but no, I wasn't surprised at all they beat Portugal. I, as you know, I'm very high on this weird place. All right. Well, you, you mentioned it. You teased it. Uh, let's get to the quarterfinal matchups here. And, and with that, I want to give you our, uh, our power rankings, our Fox Sports power rankings, which, by the way, Mossy, I don't know if you've heard, but uh, they have taken on a life of, uh, of their own. People agreeing and disagreeing, people screaming and yelling at us uh, and, and me. Um, when it comes on television, it's branded uh, me. <laughs> you, you, you wash your hands of it when it comes on television. But here on our podcast, uh, I, I, I include you. So your, your, your footprints uh, and your fingerprints are all over this. You can't run away from this. So just a reminder, last week when we talked, we had, uh, we had our top 10, which was uh, Sweden at 10, Switzerland at 9, England at 8, Portugal at 7, France at 6, Uruguay at 5, Brazil at four, and our top three, number three was Spain, number two, Croatia, number one, Belgium. Obviously, there's teams that have fallen out. You can't be in the top ten. And as a matter of fact, there is no top ten. It's just the top eight this week. So our Fox Sports power rankings are as follows. Number eight, Russia. They are the lowest, but they are in that eight. Seven, Sweden. Six, Croatia, which just scraped by Denmark, and I thought was an underwhelming performance. Five, England, after that incredible penalty uh, shootout win. Four, Belgium, we talked about whether they're real or not. Three, France with uh, Kylian Mbappe, Pogba, and, and Griezmann and company cruising along. Two, Uruguay, you mentioned the fact that Cavani might not be there, which does change the dynamic. And number one, David Mossi's Brazil. They were, I thought, really, really good, not just in the attacking phase, but even more importantly, defensively, they were solid uh, against Mexico, which could not find a way to penetrate that. And we all know that. Having a solid defense is, is huge. So Brazil at number one. Once again, the top three, Brazil one, Uruguay two, France three. Anything uh, that you would argue there or if you had your druthers, uh, you would uh, switch around? Uh, well, I know I just got done saying how high I am on Uruguay, but I would maybe flip Uruguay and France. I thought France's win over Argentina was more impressive than Uruguay's win over Portugal. Um, so I think you could make a case for flipping those two. But uh, no, otherwise, I think it's pretty good, actually. All right, so let's go to the matchups here. We'll finish up with uh, some predictions on what happens as we head off to this weekend. Two games on Friday, two games on Saturday. On Friday, we have Uruguay-France on FS1 at 10 a.m. Eastern. Then we have Brazil-Belgium on FS1 at 2 p.m. Eastern. And then on Saturday, we have Sweden-England at 10 a.m. Eastern time on Big Fox, Homer Simpson Fox, and then followed by Russia-Croatia, at 2 p.m. Eastern time on Big Fox, Homer Simpson Fox. So big, big uh, days of quarterfinal action here at Rush, in Russia of the World Cup. So I'm going to go right, right, right to the jugular here, uh, Mossy. Brazil versus Belgium. Now, 
I don't want you to answer this with your heart. I want you to answer this if we had to go and put all of your money on one team to win. So Brazil, Belgium, who you got? Slightly leaning Brazil, but it, this one is pretty close to 50-50. A couple of interesting things with this game. Going into this World Cup, I think Chichi had it in his head that against lesser teams, he was going to start this lineup with Coutinho in the midfield and William Neymar and Jesus as a front three. But when they ran into somebody really good like a Belgium, he was going to uh, insert Fernandinho into that midfield, take William off and push Coutinho into William's position. I think that was the plan. But a couple of things have happened here. I think he's really liked what he's seen uh, from this lineup with Coutinho in the midfield. And he's seen that they can still be strong defensively. They're not as vulnerable as he worried they might be with that lineup. And number two, he doesn't have that option here because Casemiro got himself suspended due to yellow card accumulation. So he needs Fernandinho to start at Casemiro's position. So uh, we are going to see, I suspect, a lineup with Coutinho in the midfield, a uh, front four essentially, of Coutinho, William, Neymar, and Jesus. And then it'll be Fernandinho and Paulinho as the two central midfielders. So that's interesting. Uh, I think Jesus will, will start again. I know there's a, there's a clamoring for Firmino. I'm frankly kind of starting to get on that page too that maybe Firmino needs to start. But but Chichi still goes out of his way in, in every press conference to, to tout uh, Jesus' contributions. My feeling is when, when listen, a, a work rate is important and helping out defensively and tracking back and all that, but that needs to be like a bonus. When that's like what you're completely clinging to to justify a striker's presence on the field, I mean, it still has to be about scoring goals, and he hasn't scored a goal in four games, Gabriel Jesus. So I don't know. I think uh, – Chichi needs to maybe rethink that one. But, but the big issue for me, I, I screamed for this ahead of the Mexico game, and I think I was proven right. Despite the fact that Brazil won and it didn't concede, I thought Fabian was a disaster at right back, and, and, and all of Mexico's most dangerous moments came exploiting him down that side. I mean, guys were just skipping around him like he wasn't even there all game, and he contributed nothing going forward. Aside from he had one nice overlap where he squared it to Paulinho, who took a shot that Ochoa saved in the second half. But I uh, – he, listen, he didn't do it for this game, but I'm pleading for Chichi, if he's listening to this podcast, start Marquinhos at right back in this game. I cannot deal with 90 minutes of Fagner facing Eden Hazard. I mean, that, that's just a nightmare matchup for Brazil. He has this blind spot with Fagner because he coached him with Corinthians, and the Brazilian media likes him because they like having a player who plays in Brazil. And so I was looking at the player ratings after the game, and he was actually getting some high marks. I don't know what game people in Brazil watch. Fagner was atrocious against Mexico, and I, 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 I cannot stomach him being on the field for 90 minutes against the likes of Eden Hazard and Dries Merton. So uh, I think Chichi has to wake up there and either, either come back with Danilo, who's fit again. I could live with that, or my, my ideal option would be to start Marquinhos at right back in that game. All right. Well, first things first, if Chichi is listening to this podcast, then you guys are screwed, uh, and you got much bigger problems. Uh, okay. I'm picking... I'm, I'm picking I, I'm, uh, I'm going to pick Brazil also. Uh, I think Belgium, you're suspect. You're suspect Belgium. And I don't care what Rob Stone says. Rob Stone's been riding the Belgium train. And look, it's a wonderful train to ride. And, and you mentioned all the talent that they have. But I think ultimately, like, like you said, I think Brazil is uh, going to edge them. All right. Uh, Uruguay, France. Oh, man, I'm still sticking with Uruguay, although that Cavani thing does worry me because I think this is such a well-oiled machine. And you start to take one of those pieces out and it starts to falter in a way that makes it vulnerable. Yeah, I got to say that, you know, I'm super high on Uruguay. I would have picked them in this game. The Cavani thing is, is making me maybe slightly lean towards France. But again, this one is pretty close to 50-52. You still have Suarez there. Like I said, Maxi Gomez will come in. I'm assuming Tabarez is going to start uh, the same lineup from the last couple of games with Laxalt at left back and Torreira and Nandez in that midfield, Bentancur, which is a lineup I like with some young, fresh legs in there, more quality. So. 
Uh, if he goes with that, I still think Uruguay can win this game, even without Cavani, but that is a big miss for sure. I mean, the understanding that Suarez and Cavani have, that first goal against Portugal was a thing of beauty where Cavani plays that, switches it to Suarez and then makes the run, and Suarez drops that cross that he, I, I think it hit off Cavani's face, actually, and, and goes in. I mean, the understanding goes together. And, you know, four years ago against England, it was Cavani setting up Suarez for a similar goal in that game that, uh, Uruguay beating in, in Sao Paulo, I remember 2-1, where Suarez got both goals. So it's a shame we're not going to see both those guys on the field. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I, I guess I slightly lean France now that Cavani's out. But, but I mean, I, I have no problem with you picking Uruguay. I think this one could pretty much go either way. Okay, uh, another team that was less than impressive in their round of, 17, or round of 16 uh, game was Croatia, a team that was everybody's darling, that was a juggernaut, that was flying, that was balanced, that was uh, fearless. Uh, and they struggled. They struggled against Denmark, but they got through uh, on penalties. They face Russia. Uh, was this the wake-up call that Croatia needed? And is this when the Cinderella story stops for Russia? Uh, I think so. I think, I think Croatia gets it together, and we see another situation like that third game that Russia played. I, I know they didn't have Golovin on the field, but I think that this is where uh, the, uh, the story comes to the end for Russia. Boy, I don't know. I, I think I'm going to ride this Russia train. <laughs> Uh, the air did go out of the balloon a little bit for Croatia. Uh, although one, one note on Luka Modric, uh, it takes a lot of guts after you miss a penalty that like he did uh, to come back and make it in, in the shootout. You know, Zico doesn't get a, any credit for this because Brazil ultimately lost that shootout to France in 86. But after missing famously a penalty in the second half of that game, he then came back and made his in the shootout while Platini missed his. Uh, so that, that is impressive when a player can do that, I think. Of course, even better is to do what Harry Kane did, which is to make it both in regulation and in the shootout. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I really, this whole Russia-South Korea comparison with South Korea 2002, uh, managed by Gus Hink, um, I, I'm, I'm kind of on that page now. I think that Russia somehow, somewhere are going to figure out a way to beat Croatia. All right. And finally, uh, England-Sweden. Uh, England has visions of, of the return to the promised land and certainly has a pathway right now. Uh, Gareth Southgate is one step away from being knighted at this point. Uh, and, but they're coming up against the Sweden, a team that they, they know, a team that I think matches up well against them. Uh, I, I, uh, I, I want to pick England, and yet I, just, I, I think that Sweden is not a fun team, not an exciting team, but a team that knows exactly who they are and a team that won't, won't fear this new England team in any way. So I think, I think it's close, but I think Sweden edges them. Well, yeah, another close one. Um, I think I'm, I think I'm slightly leaning England on this, but uh, but Sweden could certainly win. A couple of thoughts on Sweden, by the way. Uh, it's great to see them back in the quarterfinals, first time since '94. I'm sure you remember that great team, the World Cup you played in with Martin Dahlin and Thomas Brolin and and Ravelli and Goal. They got all the way to the semifinals. They lost to Brazil one 0 in the Rose Bowl. Uh, so it's really nice to see Sweden back um, in the quarterfinals. And I have to say, there, there's some real Ewing theory here with Zlatan. Uh, you know, the fact that Inter Milan finally won the Champions League the season after he left, and now you see Sweden without him. You know, Zlatan is still trying to, is firing off tweets and still trying to hog some of the attention. But, I mean, I, to me, this is actually kind of a bad look for him that Sweden is doing this without him, um, you know, after not even qualifying for the last two World Cups. So the moral of the story here is the LA Galaxy will win MLS Cup the season after uh, Zlatan leaves them. So that seems to be the pattern. <laughs> All right, before we head off, uh, Mossy, anything else uh, you want to say about uh, about these matchups? As I said, they come up uh, on Friday and Saturday. We have 
for the first time this tournament, we not only have uh, today off, but we also have tomorrow off. So we have a two-day off uh, break here. Everyone's kind of rejuvenating physically and mentally. We have a wonderful July 4th celebration tonight. Anything you want to say to the folks before we uh, leave them until next week? Two final thoughts for me. First of all, uh, I've been very inspired by the behavior of the Japanese team and their fans. So I've decided I'm going to start cleaning up after myself, making my bed here every night. Uh, when I go to the movie theater and buy popcorn and drinks, I'm going to make sure to throw it out uh, on my way out. I don't always do that, which is bad. So uh, kudos to Japan for their behavior. I mean, I'm half joking, but I'm actually half serious. <laughs> I found it very touching the way they, they uh, comport themselves after a gut-wrenching loss like that to still do what they did and clean up the dressing room and leave a thank you note. I mean, it's just incredible behavior on their part. And uh, uh, number two, uh, uh, word of caution for anybody that ever gets a haircut uh, in Russia. Uh, their definition of not too short is different than ours because as you'll see, Alexi, uh, uh, tonight I went for a cut a couple days ago. I said short, but not too short. And I ended up walking out with a, a crew cut. So you'll see, uh, uh, <laughs> I'm giving you a warning when you see me tonight that uh, I'll be ready for a very short haircut, shorter than you've ever seen from you. That, my friends, is uh, what we call in the business a tease, and I cannot wait now. Uh, I hope you don't use it as an excuse for uh, why uh, uh, you are not getting any more numbers, but I want to congratulate you on at least getting this one number. Uh, I look forward to hearing how the uh, the time spent with this young lady is. Uh, well, first off, if it happens, and then, then if it happens, then how that uh, actually uh, uh, goes off. Um, uh, listen, uh, we are, as I said, recording this on July 4th. We are recording this in Russia on July 4th. Uh, we are recording this in the shadow of uh, Red Square and the Kremlin and St. Basil's and all of this incredible history when it comes to Russia. But we are thinking and uh, our hearts are with uh, everyone that is celebrating this incredible uh, country that we live in, in my estimation, the greatest country in the world that affords us so many wonderful liberties and, and opportunities uh, to be able to do something like this. And uh, we don't take it for granted. And so whether it's doing our podcast, whether it's talking about the World Cup, whether it's traveling, um, what, whatever, it's, whatever we are doing, uh, I think everybody would join me in, uh, in an appreciation for what this country has given to so many. And uh, the incredible sacrifices that people have made in order to enable us uh, in this country to receive all of these wonderful uh, benefits that we get. So happy birthday to the United States. Uh, have a wonderful and a safe July 4th. Uh, do, uh, do all the wonderful things and celebrate this great country as we will be doing over here uh, as a group. We look forward to seeing everybody when we get back, but we still got work to do. We still got an incredible World Cup and this uh, these quarterfinals kick off this week. We will be back again next week, at which point we will have our semifinal matchups, and we will talk to you again then. As always, happy July 4th, and size the day. <laughs>